Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be together this morning. My name is John. I serve as our family and discipleship pastor, and our Christmas takedown kind of depends on the year. Uh, some years we can't wait to get the tree out, and you know, and then you find needles for like ever. I heard somebody say this week that needles are nature's glitter. If you have a real tree, you know, you know what that means. So, um, but hey, great to be together this weekend. And uh, as we get started here, uh, if you're new with us, we want to just extend a special welcome to you. We want to make sure that you got a New Here guide when you came in. And on the inside of that New Here guide, you'll find some details about the service. And you'll also find a sermon application guide. And a sermon application guide is for you to take some notes during the service, during the sermon. Uh, and there's also some, some questions in there that will help you to take what we talk about and learn in here this morning uh, with you throughout the rest of your week. So grab one of those. If you don't have one yet, they're on the, the stands near the back of the, of the room here. So um, let's pray together, and then we will we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, in the midst of a world that can sometimes feel overwhelming and demanding, we are so thankful for the simplicity of the gift that you offer us. And as we enter into this place this morning, we just want to still our minds and our hearts and Focus them to you. Peace with you is not something that we can earn or purchase. It is something that you have given us freely. Only you can save us and only you can satisfy us. By your spirit, would you open our hearts this morning and our eyes as well to see and understand. As we look to your word, teach us more of what it means to live like you. Guide us by your truth and lead us by your ways. Amen. So on this weekend, as we're coming out of, uh, out of Christmas and into the new year, um, you know, in the, in the pastor preaching world, this service is sometimes, or the preaching of this service sometimes is known as the graveyard shift. It's kind of that, it's kind of that in-between where everybody's kind of tired from this and not ready to go here. And so, uh, so I have the opportunity to get to be here with you this morning and, and, and start to help us step into not only the new year, but into the, the new series that we are about to, to enter into. And uh, to help us this morning as we kind of wake up to this really depressing scene outside that should be a foot of snow, uh, which maybe that's more of a groan for some of you than the rain itself. But for me, I would like to see a little bit more, uh, some more white stuff. But anyway, to help us this morning, I brought, I brought a prop. And the prop, uh, this is it right here. Does anybody know what this is? Have an idea? This is a piece of metal. Yep, that's right. It, this is a piece. This is a subframe off of a vehicle. Uh, not my vehicle. It's actually supposed to be on my vehicle. Uh, it was supposed to go on there this week onto my beloved 2002 Toyota Highlander, and uh, I'll explain why that didn't happen. But uh, but that's what this is. This is a subframe from a car, and I may have to hang this in my garage just as a as an ornament or something like that. But, but the reason that I have this, uh, this, this subframe up here is uh, it was supposed to, like I said, supposed to go in my car this week. Um, the, the car that I drive is, a, is an older uh, Toyota Highlander, and it has 250,000 miles on it, which means that it has been to the moon. Okay, the moon, if you didn't know this, is about 238,900 miles average. You know, it changes because of the orbit and things like that. But for all intents and purposes, it's about 240,000 miles away, so I've been to the moon. This is not the first car that I've taken to the moon. 
I've, I've, had, I've had this before, and it's on its way back. And, um, and this week, I had my car serviced by our mechanic. His name is Rich, and uh, his shop is Century Avenue Service. Some of you know Rich and probably have your car serviced there as, as well. Um, well, he's awesome. And there are a few things in life that, are, that bring as much peace of mind as a good mechanic, and Rich is that guy. So I had my Highlander in his shop this week, and uh, see, you would never know that that has been to the orbit of the moon and back, right? Look how shiny that is. Uh, and so Rich called, and he said, hey, John, we got your oil change done, but um, we got a problem, and it's bad, real bad. Anytime a mechanic says that, it's not a good thing. And especially when Rich says it, because Rich is a straight shooter. He doesn't waste any words. He just says it specifically. So when he says it's real bad, he, he, he's, he's serious. He's like, remember that Camry that you used to drive? I said, yeah. Remember that subframe issue? This is the same issue I had on that car. Remember that subframe issue that we had? Yeah, was that about like 242? Yeah, yep, 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 that's the one. And uh, he said, well, this is the same, only it's worse, way worse. So I'll show you when you get here. So I went down and he showed me, you know, what was happening. And, and so I called the salvage yard, same salvage yard that I worked with in the past, and, and, uh, and, and got the part. And I don't know if I just have an emotional attachment to these cars or what the deal is, but some people would say, John, why are you taking apart the undercarriage of your car? Why don't you just go get another car? Well, it's not that simple. There's, you know, it, it, it still has some life in it, and it's, it's, it still is okay, well, most days to be driven. And... Um, and so Rich sent me to his other shop on uh, Snelling and Randolph, and he said uh, they'll be able to take a look at it on Friday. And uh, if you get the frame by then, they should be able to, to get you all set. I'm like, okay. So I drop it off, and I walk down the street to get a cup of coffee, and about 20 minutes later, I get a phone call, and uh, it's Sean from the other shop, and he says, hey, John, you're st are you still in the neighborhood? I said, yeah, I'm just down the block getting a, getting a cup of coffee. He's like, well... You better, you better come back here. And I was like, well, you guys done already? He's like, oh, no, 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 no. He's like, well, yes, we're done. <laughs> but we're not done. So I'll see you in a few minutes. So I walk down there, and, and it's still up on the lift. And so he walks, we walk underneath the car, and he shows me. And the, this part of the frame where it connects to the actual body of the vehicle right here, this, there, there, there's no metal here anymore. It's just completely rusted out. And uh, he said, yeah, you see this corner? That's, this, this subframe is holding up your rear suspension. And you see this corner? There's, there's nothing there. And I was like, wow, that's pretty bad. He's like, yeah, it's really bad. And uh, I said, well, how, how long do I have? And he looks at me like, are you an idiot? <laughs> and... And uh, that's why I love mechanics. They just don't, they don't mess around. And so I said, well, how long? He's like, well, I mean, you driving your kids in this car? And I was like, well, sometimes. He said, well, don't do that anymore. He said, I mean, you probably have a few weeks, you know, or a month, but it's not, it's not long. Uh, and so, like, like taking our car to a mechanic, a new year, and this is where this is going. A new year offers us an opportunity to stop and reflect, to look back at where we've been in the year prior, to look forward to some of the things that we're looking forward to in the new year. Uh, one of the things that we look forward to is it just feels like a fresh start. It feels like an opportunity to, to introduce some new habits or some new rhythms or to let some old habits that, that maybe aren't as healthy to go away and leave them, leave them behind. 
And like taking our car to a mechanic, uh, we get an opportunity to inspect our lives and to look for some things we'd like to change. But like the frame of a car, which, which we don't normally see, there are things in our lives that we can't see and aren't aware of, but that are nonetheless essential to how we go about life every day. When things fail or break in our physical or relational or spiritual lives, it's way worse and, and much more painful than the part of a, a part of a car. And it's not as easily replaced as a car part. Because most of the time we're talking about a failed relationship. Or we're talking about a distance from our creator that we're just not quite sure how to, to put back together. We all have this stuff, and this is a part of our journey as, as disciples, as followers of Christ. And so the question is, so what do, what do we do? How do we find and see the things that, that, that we need to change when we can't see them with our eyes and our everyday lives? How do we look at and, and discover what things God is trying to lead us to or lead us away from? What, what are the things he's warning us from and warning us away from to, to tr- help us to try to avoid destruction? Well, we're starting a new series this month, and uh, this, this weekend is a primer to that. And next week, our lead pastor, Henry, will jump into that. And the series is called Good and Beautiful Life. And, uh, and so, and, and then next weekend, when, when Pastor Henry kicks off this series, specifically, it's Good and Beautiful Life, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount will, will serve as the warning lights for us. By this teaching, we will stop and put our lives up in the air like a car on a hoist, and inspect and discover where it is that we are in need of transformation. But transformation and change aren't easy because they don't happen overnight. The hardest part about making a change is that it's hard to stick to it. This is why most New Year's resolutions don't don't work. Change is hard. And they start like, like like planting a seed, like a farmer planting a crop. And do you know what a field looks like the day after a, uh, or right after a, a farmer plants his field, this is what it looks like. Do you know what it looks like the day after he's planted that field, or the next week? It looks like that. Crops don't spring forth from the ground within a matter of days or hours ha- having been planted. It takes time. And, and a farmer doesn't rush out to his field and wring his hands and in and, and, and distress feel like a failure or feel like he's done something wrong or that what he's planted wasn't worth it or that his work was in vain. He knows that what he's planted is already at work underneath the ground. And although it will take time for that work and, and the growth that's occurring underneath the ground to show itself above ground, he knows that it's happening. When we start a new thing, we expect that it should yield instant results. Part of that is our humanness, and some of that is just the way that the rest of our lives work. We could order something right now on Amazon, and it might beat us home before we get there. Or it will be there within the next two days. We don't have to wait long for for anything that we want to get our hands on. But anything that is meaningful oftentimes takes time. And so as we prepare ourselves for this new series and what I believe is going to be a life-changing season in the life of our church, we're going to start this weekend looking at four steps that will help prepare us for transformation. 
Normally, we work our way through a passage, and that's what we'll begin doing next weekend. And we're going to do the same, same thing here this weekend to some degree, but we're also going to approach this first uh, from the perspective of how do we begin preparing our hearts for transformation? And as we do that, we're going to look at what Jesus says about that. We're going to look at what God's Word says about transformation. What, where, where are some places that, that God offers some warning about the direction of our lives? Transformation towards becoming more like Jesus starts with following him. And the passage that we're going to start with tells us a bit of what that looks like. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, the 11th chapter. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 977. And, uh, and this is a part of the book. We'll, we'll break this down a little bit in a, in a moment. Uh, but Matthew here has recorded something that Jesus himself had said to them. And so we're in the 28th verse of the 11th chapter, and, and, and Jesus says this, Matthew's recording this, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The message translation takes this verse and puts it in a common language that at times, you know, for me personally yields some incredible power, and I have it up here for you. This is the same verse in the message translation. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This passage reminds us of what life with Jesus looks like. And it's in contrast to what we're prone to turn it into. And we'll get there in a moment, but to give you a little bit of a background on what's happening here in this section of the book of Matthew, uh, these couple chapters, 11 and 12 in the book of Matthew, are oftentimes referred to as the Christ book uh, section of Matthew. And what that means is that it's a part of, of Matthew's writing in which he's turned to focus on the character of Christ. And so he's not just recording some things that are happening. He's chosen some things that he wants to record that are going to offer us a look at, at who Jesus is. What is his character? Who is it that, that he spends time with? What does he teach? How does he act? And who, who is this person of Jesus? Well, we know as we've celebrated this last week that Jesus is, is God with flesh. He is God in human form. And so these characteristics of Jesus that Matthew is revealing to us are not just characteristics of some person who's, uh, you know, sent by God. They are God himself. And the invitation here in chapter 11 is not just a nice invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation from God. It's an invitation to see him differently and to relate with him differently and to experience him differently. To go Bible geek uh, on here for a second, one of the things that I studied revealed that if we were to outline this particular chapter, there would be three headings that would outline this chapter. And starting in, in the beginning of, of chapter 11, it would start with Jesus Christ, of the Son of God, 
is Savior. In other words, it starts with the promised Messiah, a coming judge, and a present Savior. And the, the verses that we find ourselves in, in this verse, verses 28 and 30, fall in that present Savior section of this book of Matthew. And the main theme comes to, comes to light in these verses, and that, that, that the reason that Jesus is here is to save the needy, to save those who are in need of saving. And that is you and it is me. We are in need of saving. We are in need of transformation. Our first step in being transformed is to restore our narrative of God. Narratives are stories that form our beliefs and the way that we go about life. And we are, we are storied creatures. Most of what we, we do in life has, has some story to it. And take, you know, for example, uh, let's talk about Star Wars. I'm not going to reveal anything. I haven't seen it, so don't reveal anything to me either. But why do we like Star Wars so much and movies like it? It's not about space. It's not about robots. It's not about lightsabers. Well, maybe it's a little bit about lightsabers. It's about a story. And the story in the, in the story of Star Wars is gripping. And we put ourselves in the shoes of any number of the characters that are in the movie Star Wars. And there are so many movies like that. That is why movies are so powerful. It's the power of story. And it's not just that it's entertainment. It connects to something that is in our DNA. We are hardwired for story. And it's why it's so important for us to understand the overarching narrative of the Bible, the overarching narrative of the story of God. We are storied creatures and we find ourselves in the midst of a story and it helps us to determine who we are and what our identity is and who God is and, and, it, and it, just, it makes all of life make a lot more sense. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but it gives us the opportunity to understand what part of the story we're playing. So we are storied creatures, and it speaks to how we experience life. Examples of this would be, you know, think of, you know, different narratives that you might have about things positively and negatively. If you hear about a restaurant that has some issues with some food, that begins to build a narrative about that restaurant. And whether or not it's true, it's the way that you operate based on the narrative that you believe in. You might have a certain narrative about a sports team. We don't have any of those rivalries around here, so this might not really connect with us, but um, well, of course we do. But we develop a narrative about teams and about, about the type of person that cheers for that team. And, you know, that's a narrative. And by it, we, we, assign, we, we assign qualities and attributes. And so when our narrative of God is off, we, have, we, we are prone to assign characters and pieces of character and qualities to him that are not true. And we come by these things sometimes very innocently. For example, if someone, were, someone grew up in a home where, where either their father was missing or they, they had you know, a very negative, maybe even abusive relationship with their father, the idea of seeing God as a heavenly father doesn't work so well. It's very difficult. And it doesn't mean that we don't then look to God as our Father, but it means that there, there, there needs to be some steps that have to happen in order for, for that person to be able to, to, to reform, restore their narrative of what a father is. But So our narratives that we, we experience in life can, can inform the way that we approach God. Our narrative of God shapes the way we believe in Him, the way what we believe about Him, and it shapes the way we interact 
with him. And so there's four narratives that, that, that are pretty common. To all. There's tons of narratives in our lives, but there's four that we want to look at uh, really quickly here this morning. The first is family. And our family narratives are stories that we learn from our immediate families about the way the world works. This is where, for most of us, this is where our worldview first gets generated. The things that happen in our family are telling us something about how the world works. It's why the family is such a powerful place. The second one is cultural narratives. Cultural narratives are formed by the culture and geography and the, 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 way, the place that we were, were born, the place we grow up, the place that we live. Now, in America, we'll get to this in a little bit. In America, we have a very individualistic mindset, very individualistic narrative that drives a lot of what we do. And most of the time, at least in our present context, it does not serve us very well. It comes from a, a country that was... That was settled by people that had nothing to depend upon but themselves. From the pioneers that if they broke their arm, they had to figure out how to, how to fix it. If they got a cut while they were working on something, they had to figure out how to fix it. If they needed food, they had to figure out where they were going to get food. There was nothing and no one else for them to depend upon besides themselves. Now, there are some, certainly some positive attributes that come from that, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but that's an example of, of a cultural narrative. It says something to us about how we are to interact with the world around us. There are religious narratives. That's the third type of narrative. These are stories that we hear in our churches, things that we talk about in our small group or that we learn about at youth group. Uh, they're they're th things that we, we discover in different religious books that we read. And they form how we understand who God is, what he wants of us, and how we are to live. And just like any narrative, there can be some religious narratives that we hold that actually keep us from experiencing God the way he intends for us to experience him. And the fourth narrative that we want to highlight here this morning is Jesus' narratives. These are the stories and images that we see in Jesus, that Jesus tells that, that reveal the character of God. An example will be the text that we're using today. Come to me, all you who are weary. Take my yoke upon you. Find rest for your souls. That's not just Jesus telling us something that is nice. That's Jesus revealing the character of God. That God is not this distant tyrant who is looking to punish us for the things that we've done wrong. God is a present Savior looking to save and transform the needy looking to offer people rest for their souls, to come and, and find who they are in, they created to be in him. And the Gospels are full of stories and images of how Jesus lived and interacted with people. And these form a narrative that is a, a very true narrative of who God is. And we can, we, we can and we should derive our narrative of God, what we believe about God, from the character of Christ. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the visible expression of an invisible God. And we derive what we believe about God from Jesus. Many times our beliefs and thought processes may sh be shaped by false narratives. A false narrative is something that we believe that is not actually true. And its source may be one of the four things that we've discussed, or maybe one of the three 
You know, Jesus' narratives are the most trustworthy narratives of who God is. We can restore our narratives by, by adopting this narrative of Jesus. Who is Jesus? How does he live? How does he act? How does he love? How does he forgive? How does he relate with people? How does he call people to newness of life? That is the true narrative of God. James Bryan Smith, who wrote the book Good and Beautiful God, says this, with a rightfully restored narrative of who God is, we can come to know and fall in love with the God that Jesus knows. We can come to know and fall in love with the God that Jesus knows. There is something to that phrase that is deeply inviting. And it's for me personally, and I hope for you, it should stop us in our tracks and cause us to ask, do I know the God that Jesus knows? And how do I know that I know the God that Jesus knows? And whether or not that answer is yes or no is not really the point. The point is that there's an invitation here that is deeply inviting to us to, to fall in love with the God that Jesus knows. The second way that we, that we prepare ourselves for transformation is to recognize our need for soul training. Last month we talked about the importance of spiritual disciplines. And remember that we define spiritual disciplines in this way. They are routines that help us to experience an invisible God in visible and tangible ways. They're routines that help us to experience an invisible God in visible in tangible ways. The problem with spiritual disciplines is that the way that, it's not the disciplines themselves. It's the way that we approach them. And the way that most of us approach spiritual disciplines is very legalistically. We approach them as though we're earning something or where we're trying to prove ourselves to God or we're performing for God. Or as Pastor Henry introduced to us during our Christmas services, it's one of the ways that we can turn God into a vending machine. That we use the spiritual disciplines like currency to say, God, I'm giving you this I'm being good, or I'm doing these things that you said I should do, and now you should do this for me. And so, but there's this idea of trying to reframe how we think about the spiritual disciplines is not just doing them blindly. It's thinking through how we approach it. It's really a mindset, mindset shift. And most of us, myself included, we're, we're kind of playing off of a mindset that doesn't set us up to, to be transformed very easily because for the most part, we have not been taught a reliable pattern of transformation. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that, that, that we don't simply change by just wanting to change. And any, most of the time when we are ready to change or we want to change something, we begin to think about, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this differently and we hit it directly. But either we don't experience the, train, the change that we wanted, or it doesn't work quite way, the way we thought it would, but when we hit things directly, that's not a reliable pattern of transformation. A more reliable of, a pattern of, of transformation is by indirection. I'm going to explain um, what that means. And essentially, it's not a willpower thing. It's not something where we will ourselves to do something different. This is a thinking and behavior thing. It's like a form of training. That if, you are, if you've ever been on a workout regimen or if you're learning something new in school, you don't learn the thing or do the thing just to know the thing or do the thing. You don't lift weights just to lift weights. If you're an athlete, you lift weights to be able to perform better on the athletic surface that you, that you participate in. 
If you, if, you are, if you have an instrument that you play, you don't practice just to be able to practice the individual notes. You practice to be able to play a much bigger song. Peyton Manning uh, used to practice with soaked footballs. I read this this week. That uh, after they won the Super Bowl, that was a particularly rainy Super Bowl one year, the reporters asked him, how was it hard to, to, hard to handle the football? How did you not have any issues with the, with the football. And he went on to explain, or maybe somebody else explained for him, that what nobody knew is that, is that Manning used to, used to have a bunch of footballs that he would just put in a tank of water. And after everybody had gone home for the day, he would go back into the training facility and start, and start throwing and handing off and messing around with these soaked footballs. Now, he wasn't just playing with the soaked footballs just, you know, for fun. He was training himself to be able to do something without thinking about it. Training himself to be able to do something as though it were second nature. And so when the time came for him to have to throw a wet football, he didn't think about it like it was a wet football. It was just a football. And he had no issues playing with a wet football. And soul training is very similar to that. We don't do these things to perform for God. We do them to grow closer to God and to improve how we function as his followers. They help us to live what we believe and as a part of our nature. As a part of the nature of following Christ, they are things that begin to naturally flow out of us because of how we're training. So soul training exercises are wise practices that train and transform our hearts. And they are rhythms of life that help us to experience the power of grace. Rhythms of life that help us experience the power of grace, of God's grace. And not God's grace just as as a form of forgiveness, God's grace as a form of empowerment. They help us to experience God's grace because it comes from God. One of the questions that you have in your sermon application guide this week has, has you reflecting on a passage in Galatians that talks about the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit aren't things that we're just supposed to do. They are things that naturally flow out of us as we walk with Christ and as we are transformed by Christ. This is an example of indirection. And So for example, most of us can't learn to be patient by being patient. Most of us can't learn to be patient by trying to be more patient. Typically, there's another thing in there that's causing a level of impatience. And so when we, that, that is indirection. When we are transformed by and changed by, by another pattern of living, that, that's what's happening here. Then we see the fruits of the Spirit come to life in our lives. And so you have an opportunity to reflect on that week. But that's an example. That is indirection. And this is how Jesus' yoke is easy. This is what he's inviting us to consider in, in, in the book of Matthew. If we think the things he thought, and if we do the things that he did, and spend time with people who uphold those same things, we will become like him. But not on our, on our own. We will become like him as we are empowered by him to do so. So in other words, we have to examine the way we think, which is our narratives. And we have to practice spiritual disciplines or soul training. And how we practice 
and who we are interacting with, which is our social context. So we have to examine the way we think and how we practice and who we are interacting with in our social context. And that brings us to, to our third, the third way that we prepare ourselves for transformation is to, is to re-engage with church community. And by church community, we don't mean just coming to church on Sunday. That's certainly a big part of it. We don't, we're not referring to church as the building. We're referring to church as the people. That is the part of our social context. Who do we spend time with? Now, before you get a narrative running on, on what, it, what I'm about to say, uh, just stop for a second and, and hear this carefully. Not all of our friends should be like-minded and in the same circle. And so this is not saying to, you know, in the past we've talked about the fortress and parish models uh, of how a church is to exist, how the body of Christ is to exist in a community. And we are not to, as, as God's community, as, as Christ followers, to pull ourselves to the edge of the world and just kind of hide until Jesus comes back and punches all the bad people. You know, that's not, that's not a, a proper view of, of what he's calling us to. And so that's not what I'm saying here. But it says, so not all of our friends should be like-minded and in the same circle. You should have rhythms in your life that regularly connect you with people that are far from God and in need of his love and grace. You should have rhythms in your life that regularly connect you with people who, who are not following Christ the way you are and are in desperate need of his saving. But at the same time, if the only people that we interact with are people who do not believe or profess to have the faith that you do, transformation towards being like Jesus is not only hard, it's almost impossible. We need the community of God to remind us of who we are. And, and this is the, the first point there, is that it's a place where we are reminded of the bigger story that we are living in. There are lots of stories out there. Most of them are false. Most of them will not bring to us the, the joy and happiness that they promise to bring. And so our, our, our community of, of, of Christ followers is a place where we're reminded of the bigger story that we are living in. It's a place where we activate our learning and living as disciples. Uh, you know, you could divide the way we learn into passive and active. And it's not, can't just be passive learning where we're taking things in. There has to be active learning where we're engaging in what we, what we are learning. And that's, that's what happens in, in, for example, in a small group. It's an opportunity to activate what you're learning. It rescues us from the dead end of individualism. Remember when we talked about this individualistic nature in, in the narratives. The American culture encourages a narrative that says it's up to you, and the hidden part of that narrative is that it's all about you. And that is not consistent with the narrative of Jesus. Individualism leaves us selfish, it leaves us isolated, and it leaves us alone. But it disguises itself as strength and as ability, as success and as, as independence. But what it really is, is cleaning up the outside while the inside is rotting out. That narrative, the narrative that's present throughout Scripture, Jesus shows us over and over again. And there's even a, a section in the Minor Prophets in the book of Haggai that uh, he, he's bringing a truth to, to, to the people that God is concerned about, that they're so worried about building their own homes and, and having their own things that they haven't rebuilt the temple of God. And the point 
in there is, for us is not that we ought to go build a temple for God. We know that God's temple lives and resides inside of our hearts. And so in our own lives, if we are spending more time building a life for ourselves than we are building the, the temple of God inside of us, that's what God is warning us about. We need the community of God to remind us and call us back to following Christ. And we get to do that in the context of community. Spiritual formation happens best in the context of a small group. The fourth way that we prepare ourselves for transformation is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a graphic in your sermon application guide uh, that shows how this works. So around the edges of this triangle, you see the first three things that we've discussed. We adopt the narrative of Jesus so that, so that we can be assured that we are approaching God and believing in God and following God in, in the way that, that Jesus is revealing God. The second way is through soul training and spiritual disciplines to where we're, we're training ourselves to have, have the, the, the way that God has called us to live. Those things begin to come out of us uh, as a part of our natural selves. And the, the third one is church community, where we're connected to other people who are trying to do the same thing. But the fourth one is probably the most important. And that is that none of this happens without the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told his disciples upon leaving them that he wasn't just leaving them, he was going to send them a helper. So in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says this, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is the power of God living inside of us. I saw this post on Instagram this week, and it stopped me in my tracks and something that I, I want to hang on to. We, we have all kinds of heroes in, in, in the Bible that we look to, but think about it this way. When we get to heaven and we meet Moses and we ask him, what it was like to part the Red Sea, or ask David what it was like to slay Goliath, they will turn to us and ask, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit himself living inside of you? We have the power of God living inside of us. And the, the heroes of the faith that we read about in, in God's story are still heroes, and they still had God's presence with them, but not living inside of them. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection is that the power of the Holy Spirit is no longer confined to where he is. It exists inside the hearts and minds of those who follow him, wherever they are. And we carry the power of the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. The Holy Spirit is our unseen teacher and, and, and our guide, and he resides in those who receive God's forgiveness and walk in newness of life with him. That is what it means to experience the yoke of Christ. That we walk with him. His yoke is easy. It's not our effort. It's Jesus' effort. It's our faithfulness to what he's already done and walking in step with him, empowered by his Holy Spirit that creates transformation in our lives. And so as we enter into the, this coming month and the month after, as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, I invite you to... To, to look over these, these four steps of, of how we prepare ourselves for transformation. Let them work in you and let them do their work to you in your life. Let's pray together.
God, as we spend time with you here this morning, we invite you to remind our hearts and our minds what it means to follow you. God, encourage us and um, restore us to a right relationship with you, a relationship that is not dependent upon our own effort, a relationship that is dependent upon our reliance on the power that you've already given us. God, you tell us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And oftentimes we turn our relationship with you into something that it shouldn't be. So help us to restore that today. Help us to come to a new place of reliance on you. God, may it spring forth as joy in our hearts and in our minds. May it put smiles on our faces as we go from here. Be with us as we, as we take the next few moments to respond to you and remember what you did for us to make that possible. Amen.